Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. In this episode of Chunk of Change, we speak with Karen Lawson, recently departed Managing Director of Spotify Australia and New Zealand. Karen's one of Australia's best-known tech executives, having also led an online career marketplace, Career One, and corporate accelerator, Slingshot, prior to joining Spotify in early 2019. In a not-so-spare time, Karen's a passionate food and travel writer, counting The Daily Addict, Carousel.com, Yahoo 7, and The Daily Telegraph as publishers of her deliciously escapist content. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Karen Lawson, ex-managing director of Spotify, aspiring sourdough maker, and food and travel writer extraordinaire. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Hi, great to be here. So no prizes for guessing, given your lovely accent, you are English. (laughs) Not long after you arrived on our shores, you became Yahoo's general manager of business development and partnerships, and then CEO of the job search site Career One. Of course, most recently, Um, you were Spotify's managing director of Australia and New Zealand and left just before, I believe, just before COVID hit earlier this year. How have you been spending your time since then? Well, a mix of things. I think think COVID's been a really interesting period of, uh, or stage of my life, actually. I've really, really enjoyed just the the quietness, slowing down a little bit. But um, I think overall I've become... Uh, an avid sourdough baker. Uh, I've taken on quite a few consulting clients, so I look after a number of different CEOs and startups and um, and uh, working with a couple of boards. So Save the Children Fund, they've just created a new investment fund to invest into startups that are looking at fundamentally changing a number of issues around child poverty, education, and um, some of the issues around sustainability and quality of life for, for children around the world. We'll talk a little bit more about your work with the likes of Save the Children perhaps a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Are you missing work at all? You know, obviously Spotify would have been a reasonably intense environment, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. Um, yeah, look, I, look, I love working. Um, I'm also, I've been a, a food and travel writer for about 12 or 15 years. So I manage um, probably about six to 10 writers for Daily Addict as well, which is a, a kind of a lifestyle site covering what's new and notable. So I guess I haven't, I've tried to slow down, but I haven't really. So it's lots lots to keep me busy until I find the next exciting thing. I understand that you're probably in an NDA for Spotify at the minute, but are you able to elaborate at all in terms of some of the lessons learned or, or perhaps your thought process in choosing to make the decision to leave the business? Yeah, look, I think um, normally when you say to anyone in the street, Spotify, their eyes sparkle, there's a smile on their face, and sometimes they'll spend the next five or 10 minutes telling me how much they love the business. And that is, it's intoxicating. And it's um, such a, I think such a badge of honour to be leading a business that actually really does fundamentally change lives and people really, truly love it. Um but I think, you know, for all of us, when we think about our careers, we naturally really want to find our home where our strengths are at play. And sometimes we find ourselves in roles where actually wasn't really anyone's fault, but the business might have changed or pivoted and your strengths, you can't, are not at play. And that's really not enjoyable. So I think with a lot of global organisations as well, you know, the I guess the tension point between global and local leaders is always a a point of friction. You know, some global businesses give their local leaders a lot of autonomy and other businesses have a very different structure. And I think, you know, I really excel in those environments with a lot of local autonomy, um, really being able to ideate and to innovate locally and really care about how we can drive growth through the business by, you know, being bold, being innovative and delivering new solutions. And so I think, um, you know, Spotify is an amazing company, um, lots of fans all around the world, but Australia really is a mature market. So 
now we've launched podcasting, I think um, for me, I just really am craving something that's got a lot more business development, has got a lot more creativity to it locally than I think that role necessarily gave me. So many people inevitably find themselves without um, quite unquote a, a traditional job. Um, the gig economy is obviously mm. continuing to to thrive, but um, so many people find themselves in very different employment situations at this time. I remember reading something about you at, at Yahoo when you were there as general manager of business development and, and partnerships, where you talked a lot about the importance of sending people off with dignity and respect. Mm. I'd love if you could break that down a little bit further for us. Yeah. Look, um, I think I've worked across lots of different organisations and and certainly Yahoo at the time had um, a number of different restructures. And, uh, you know, it's quite painful sometimes to see those, you know, loved colleagues walk out the door and... Uh, I think for whatever reason, maybe they didn't understand why the restructure was happening. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't create um, pathways for celebration, for send-off. And, um, you know, I very much thought back then that if I was there to ever be a CEO and if I ever had to, to sadly make some of those decisions, and we would have heard from Alan Joyce this morning, you know, talking with um, great pride about his people and how hard it's been to make these decisions. But in order to continue the business, sometimes leaders do have to make those decisions. But it's with such gratitude that you thank those those members of the team that have really made it that great business it is. And uh, sometimes you, you don't always see the best of people and the best of leaders through those situations. And... Um, yeah, I definitely had a very, very strong view that if I was ever to be in that position, I would want to, to do it very, very differently. And we won't talk about Spotify for too long, but the other program that really piqued my interest, particularly in the current climate, was the Heart and Soul program mm. at Spotify, where Heart and Soul ambassadors from around the world assembled in the company's self-care database of tools and resources mm-hmm. and knowledge for employees to, to access whenever they needed it. Could you elaborate and perhaps break that down a little bit for Mm. us in terms of exactly how it worked? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing has come back to leadership, which is making sure that everyone in the company knows that this is a really safe environment for you to be your authentic self. Um, You know, anxiety, depression, all the different types of uh, challenges that people go through can hit you at any point in your life sometimes there's a catalyst and quite frankly sometimes there just isn't it just happens um and you know all the research has said that when you're alone and you're not able to talk to others that actually exacerbates the problem so i think the first thing is those leaders walking the talk making sure that we're talking about it all the time that it's really okay and I think in the Heart and Soul program, there are many elements to it. So the first one is really about this community of amazing humans that come together every day, whether it's online or offline, um, that kind of in their DNA say, you know, are you okay? It's okay not to be okay. Um, I think we're in the very privileged position of, you know, having a, um, you know, a quiet room where people, if they needed to sit down or de-stress or just be on their own, that they could do that. And it was no phones and... um, you know, it was a really nice place when you're having a tough time to just to decompress and relax. But I think the, you know, the this, this set of resources that we had around that. So I think there's the leadership, there's community, there's the physical environment. But I think most importantly also is the tools. So, you know, everyone would have the ability to have Headspace. And again, I think Headspace is fantastic. Headspace, I use it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. So every employee had one. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not a good sleeper. So many, many nights I kind of vlog into that and it really helps um, calm me and helps in meditation. So, you know, there's all these different tools that you, you have that bring this to life. And then there are activities that we would have through the week or the month that would also um, really shine a light on talking about problems around mental health. We uh, had a kind of a week where we really kind of celebrated these challenges and we brought even singers in that really struggled, people from different backgrounds from um, from all over Australia and um, also from Indigenous communities as well. And we even actually had a, 
a really brave woman who is part of um, the Spotify group in Australia actually get up also on stage and in front of all of her colleagues share, you know, her mental health problems, which many of us actually didn't know. So I think it's all of these different aspects and layers to what you do, but keeping that as, you know, a conversation that you always have and making people feel really comfortable and not alone and that whatever happens, you know, just just tell somebody if it's a friend, it's a family member, it's your boss, um, you know, we're here to support you and we won't be judging you, we're here to look after you. That's really interesting. Do you think that it requires an organisation the size of Spotify that's got access to the, to that sort of depth of resource to make that happen or... In some of your other roles where you're perhaps more towards the startup end of the corporate spectrum, mm. you know, presumably those sorts of organisations needed to be much more nimble and agile in addressing some of those, for want of a better term, sort of mental health challenges that humans, employees and organisations face on a daily basis. Mm. I actually don't think the size of organisation really has an impact. I think there's something wrong if it does. I mean, sometimes I think when you've got smaller teams, you know, you're more intimately bonded, you spend more time together and maybe in, you know, younger growing teams, you go through many more kind of pain points in terms of the ups and downs and the roller coaster of startup life that often bonds you. Um, and quite frankly, if you can't have those conversations, um, you know, you are going to hit some really, really tough times. And certainly that's why we like co-founders, because you've got someone to talk to that can share some of those worries. So actually, I mean, a good example is just before Spotify, I was running a kind of new co uh, for ANZ and we had a team of 15. And these were 15 strangers that were brought together in a very, very short space of time. Uh, it was almost like the United Nations of how many nationalities we had in the team. Um, right. And I remember, uh, I think there was, a, I can't remember what day it was, but there was a day where we were celebrating, um, oh, it was like National Health Day. And I wrote a, a note to the team and, and talked about, you know, some of the things that have been happening in my family and really brought that, you know, by me sharing my story and being vulnerable. And I remember one of my team um, coming to me and just said, you know what, I've never had a, a leader or a manager ever be that vulnerable or ever share that. And that meant so much to me because um, she was she was actually um, diagnosed with ADHD and also manic depression. So she had the two combined, but was also on a journey and had been on a very long journey with lots of different doctors trying to find the right medication to really stabilise her. And we had this wonderful conversation about that, that she really felt, she felt comfortable before talking about that with me. But I think fact, the fact that she then felt like she could share that more broadly with the team, and interestingly, one of the um, one of the team members, her daughter who was sixteen, was suffering from ADHD. So they kind of created these bonds. So it's not until you start sharing that you realise all these stories behind these people um, means that they can, you know, you feel like someone does understand you, does care about you, and and you're not alone. You never are alone. These things. Mm, I really like that. The importance of authentic leadership, I think, is something that I get the impression is very important to you. And of mm. course, a willingness to be open and vulnerable, I think increasingly is seen as a key part of that. How have you seen the role of vulnerability change mm. as it relates to true, authentic leadership in the workspace? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think as we look through the decades and we look at the the words that describe leaders, they're quite different today to the words that would describe leaders maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I think the different, uh, I think the different stages and ages of the workforce also demand a very different style. I mean, if you're managing a, a mostly millennial workforce, um, it's going to need or demand absolute authenticity. They just will uh, not respect any other form of communication. Um, but if you've got a mix of baby boomers and you know, Gen Zs and Gen Ys, then you're going to have to try and find a middle line. So other than, than Headspace, any tools or tricks to make sure that you're, you're turning up being the most authentic and inspiring version of yourself you can every day? Yeah, look, uh, I think they're all the things we probably know that we should be doing, which we don't probably always do. But, um, you know, I've always loved running. I've been a runner for decades now. I've done a couple of marathons. And 
So I've always found, um, you know, running outside and we're so lucky in Australia, like the weather's beautiful. We have just this incredible, incredible country. And I think, um, you know, there's something pretty special about uh, running by water or just in the streets and just filling your lungs with nature. I think that's very healing. So I think whatever the buzz is around exercise, whether it's yoga or Pilates or you know, baseball or football, any of those things, find something that you love because it does, you know, again, science has proven that these endorphins have um, a real impact on um, on your mental health. So that's, that's definitely something. I think having um, a really broad set of great friends and colleagues that, um, again, you can decompress with, uh, I kind of also call kind of my business mentors, my personal board of directors that I kind of collect and um, really enjoy talking to them and learning from them and bouncing ideas around. So I think, uh, you know, trying to have a really complete view of, you know, not just things like headspace and what you do for your mental health, but physical health, good friendships, seeing your family, creating some space for yourself, which I know is often very, very challenging and trying to find balance in your life are probably the most important things. But find out what you love and just try and do more of it. I think that's great advice. I just finished reading for the second time the famous leadership book by Bill George, True North. Mm. Don't know whether you've read it, but... I haven't. In the book... George talks a lot about the importance of someone's life story and the influence that that life story has on someone's chosen career path. What are the major factors from your own life story that have influenced where you are today? Mm-hmm. Do you know what? When I think about those kinds of questions, I go all the way back to my childhood. Um, so my dad is a hairdresser and uh, and so I was brought up in a hairdressing salon um, a very young age, actually. I think as soon as I could walk, I probably had a broom stuck in my hand to sweep up the floor or <laughs> dust stuff for the mirrors. Um, but I, I look back on those days and think how much it taught me because I, I basically worked in, in the salon helping dad for most of my, pretty much most of my adult life, actually. Um, and there are so many things about the person that I am today that I kind of learned from those, those times. Like I you know, I love sales, I love business development. And for me, somebody walking through the door who I'd never met before was just so exciting. What story did they have? What was their life like? You know, what were the challenges that were happening day to day? I mean, just it's what a privilege. And they do talk about hairdressers being the poor man's psychologist. And my goodness, you know, sometimes you would hear stories that make your hair curl without even needing perm rollers. So, <laughs> uh, you know, they were they were just really great times. And also the value of loyalty, understanding customers that will come back to you, seeing generations of, um, you know, mums and dads and their children you know, coming back and seeing those families kind of grow up. So even though I left Kent and I went to London, I'd often come back and pop into the shop and the same customers would still be there. And um, But I think it also taught me the unitary value of time. And I think when you're a hairdresser, and many jobs actually have, you know, kind of paid by that hour, uh, I kind of thought, Jesus, it's hard standing up on your feet for 10, 12 hours a day as my dad would do. Uh, I really need to find a a way to make money <laughs> and uh, you know I'd like to be in a position to look after my mum and dad who'd given me just um, you know just such a wonderful start in life and then if I think kind of professionally I, I very much went into sales quite naturally so it was kind of a Saturday girl at Thomas Cook and help people book holidays actually found my first Gaddy boyfriend you love travel presumably <laughs> yeah I do but actually my first boyfriend actually booked his holiday um at Thomas Cook. So there you go. Must have been a great sales agent. <laughs> well, he used to come in every week and pay off his holidays. So I thought, the mate, I didn't realise he was coming in to see me. I just thought that he was <laughs> doing like a lay-by. He had an amazingly good life taking all these holidays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He went to Ibiza, so I really don't know what, <laughs> what went on there anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that kind of um, took me on a, a sales, you know, being close to people and enjoying spending time with people and helping people find you know that product or service or solution that you are responsible for on that side of the marketplace um you know took me through cable and wireless uh took me after a couple of years you know traveling to to australia and then working with um 
you know, with, with Yahoo and doing a lot of business development around kind of innovations and uh, a lot of partnering work. And again, just a, it's just a, a deeper level of complexity when you're working with partners as potentially when you're in a B2B environment. So I think those are probably some of the, the themes um, that, that go through my, through my life. And then I think the startup thing has just been this natural curiosity around business development, like what's the newest, hottest, coolest, most interesting? How do we break the mold? How do we find new channels? Um, I find that instantly invigorating place to be. And, uh, you know, that that's uh, probably where, where I've kind of fallen into the space between corporates and startups and have found that, you know, extraordinarily rewarding. I really love, I don't know whether you listen to much John Mader, who's the head of CX at Publicis Sapien, and he has this concept that he talks about in terms of startups and end-ups. You know, startups want to end up being big, powerful, successful organisations. End-up cultures spend a lot of time thinking about startups and how they can learn from the cool and innovative practices mm. that they employ every day. You've obviously spent quite a bit of time at both ends of that spectrum. Have you got a sense of where you might want to go next and why? Each each side of that, whether it's a startup or corporate, have both got really great things to love about them, and I've worked both sides. Um, I think uh, it's almost as if you could transplant the the merits and the strengths of one into the environment of the other. Then you know that would be great. So, could you be in a startup that's really well funded, found its product market fit, and you know away you go and is well resourced? Now that's a really exciting rocket ship to be on. Um, or could you be in a corporate that, um, you know, I think many corporates kind of in their value system or, you know, what's on the walls is that they're innovative. But when you compare to how innovative and how fast and quick and risk-taking startups are, you kind of look at that and go, oh, you're not really innovative. <laughs> it's just something on the wall. But I think if you can bring, you know, that, that sense of playfulness, joy, creativity, um, and that people have really got the opportunity to, you know, have impact and have control over what they do, then I think um, sometimes you can find those really great areas of corporates. Um, and, and I think particularly probably Australian, New Zealand businesses going global, I would say, is probably where you find some of that magic because you're still in an environment where in Australia you're probably influencing the strategy. So I think there's a lot on the both both sides. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't say one is better than the other. They're just different. But I think if you can find a place where, um, you know, a startup has got a lot of the qualities of a corporate, or the corporate have actually found a way to embody a lot of the qualities of a startup, then either will provide the right person with a really great environment to to grow. Interestingly, a technology cluster that occupies that sweet spot between those two, between the startup and the, and the corporate, is of course the corporate accelerator space mm. where you spent a couple of years prior to joining Spotify as CEO of Slingshot. Can you unpack what was different about the startups that were successful in that corporate accelerator program versus those that perhaps struggled? Interestingly, we probably use the word startup as a kind of a catch-all for many different stages of startup. I think it's really important to recognise that they're startups, i.e. they're at early stage businesses that are still probably yet to find their product market fit. And then there are younger businesses that um, maybe in their first three years have found their product market fit and are probably growing, let's say, on average 20% year on year with either their turnover in terms of revenue or growing their staff. And that is what we call a scale up. Mm-hmm. And the most successful startups that we saw working with corporates were indeed those scale ups. So they already had. Um, you know, product market fit, they had strong teams, they often had really good um, backing or seed stage or um, angels or even VCs that were backing them. The thing that they were lacking was was the scale, which was we need customers, we know our product works, we just need more of them and how do we get that really, really, really quickly? So the most successful ones are really at that, that later stage. So businesses like Drive Yellow, um, which today were, you know, one of the businesses that actually really helped Woolworths um, 
in terms of managing this exponential growth around deliveries that they just didn't have that capacity in their network and brought on Drive Yellow to complement what they already had. Um, That's a really great example of kind of four years ago, they were still an early stage business, but, you know, working with Lion and Caltex, um, they really hit their straps and got the opportunity to kind of grow their customer base and work with some corporates. So I think those are examples of how the industry was kind of back in 2016 and some of the types of businesses a startup that would most, I think, be readily adopted by corporates. I bet it's a challenge as well, probably keeping egos in check with the amount of passion that can be involved as well. And and one of the questions I wanted to ask you, speaking of egos, do you think startup culture needs a makeover? <laughs> Um, do you know, it's, that's a really interesting question, like li- lifting up the hood. I think there's a lot of um, chest beating. I think often you look at industries and, and it often looks sexier and more exciting from the outside, but when you get inside something, you go, oh, actually, <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot that's not right here. And I think to some degree in the startup industry, and I know why they do this, but I think, you know, there is the whole idea makes it sound sexy and dynamic and fun and, you know, freeing and that you can make all the decisions that you want and you don't have to answer to anyone. And I don't know that we necessarily give as much airtime to um, some of the other sides of what it's like to be in a startup. And whether that's because people truly don't want to talk about these problems or how challenging it is, or if they were to do that with that question, you know, would somebody want to invest in me? So sometimes we don't really authentically share some of these stories because um, we're trying to put on this, uh, this kind of facade that everything is cool and easy and amazing and let's just make it bigger and bigger. So do I think it needs a makeover? I think there's some elements that are absolutely true. I think what the Startup Hub is doing in Sydney has just been nothing short of phenomenal. But I do think we need to create, maybe kind of goes back to almost the first question around mental health. I do think with that, we also need to create a space to say, you know, this is really, really tough. You know, a lot of people put their life savings on the line, their marriages on the line, their houses on their line um, to do this. And it's not just another job. Um, It's not just something you do. It's actually all you do. For some people, there is no plan B. Um, And uh, I think we should give a little bit more airtime to how hard that is, because then I think um, we probably create better channels of communication and and better opportunities for, for growth and for connection. Who do you think is responsible for that in the first <laughs> place? I mean, you, you've been, you've seen the corporates and the way that they work in the corporate accelerator mm. space. You've been involved with, you know, the venture capital industry for, for some years as well. What do you, what do you put that, what do you put that down to? Mm. Like there's many sectors of the startup industry when you think about it, you know, you've got startups and angels and seed investors and VCs and incubators and accelerators and co-working spaces you know it's a really complicated uh, landscape um i think some of the i guess some of the the attention or where kind of a lot of the the growth comes from around the startup industry is often the vcs and um i think whenever you delve into different parts of our economy and you don't see diversity sometimes um I think the voices tend to just reflect um, one sector of the community. So, for example, if you looked at VCs, um, there are very, very few venture capital firms out there with any representation of women. And so uh, I'm just using that as one example of diversity. It's, It's certainly not the example of diversity. And then if you you look at, you know, how much of VC dollars around the world go to female um, startups, it's 2.2%. Now, I have some really, really big fundamental issues around that, that there are not diverse voices. There are people in control of a lot of money and a lot of power that have the opportunity to back and help scale startups very, very quickly, but women don't get the opportunity to get access to that fund. I mean, 2.2% just tells you. So then you think, well, how are these 
and I'm just using this sector as an example, then how these female-based startups actually getting going, and most of them are actually getting going because they're bootstrapped, because they actually are not getting funded by VCs. Now, you could say, is that because they don't have the best model, or could you say that actually you're presenting to, uh, to another human being that doesn't understand or have the empathy for this particular problem that this person is solving? And all startups generally are businesses that have been created to solve a problem. And if you go behind the actual data, then you'll see that about 70% of all startup founders have founded a business because that problem has affected them or their family or someone they know about. And so when we think about the voices and egos, then I think, you know, there is there is still some work to be done around making sure that more voices are represented and more voices are heard and that we create a much more diverse ecosystem for the startup industry, which is more representative of this country that we live in and the talent that exists on, on you know, in this country. And I think um, moving towards that is going to be really exciting. I couldn't agree more. Well said. So that's your passion for technology and how you've spent the bulk of your career over the course of the last decade mm-hmm. or so. You have a fantastically well integrated work life though with some hustles on the side that we'll talk about shortly. <laughs> you also have a, a great passion for the not-for-profit space. So you're an advisor to Save the Children and mm-hmm. through the journalism work you do, you've got a great relationship with Ronnie Khan at Oz Harvest. I'd love you to elaborate a little bit on and we, we started by talking about COVID. It's, it's obviously impossible to ignore at the moment, but some of your observations on how the current pandemic is actually affecting the not-for-profit sector and how you see that evolving over the course of the next and impacting over the course of the next couple of years. I think about this a lot, actually, that the, the way that charities are funded and the way they raise money hasn't really changed very much. Um, you know, whether it's someone standing on a street with a, you know, shaking a bucket um, and then, you know, that same kind of call to action, you know, moved onto online or into TV or even, you know, movies, for example. So there really hasn't been much disruption in that sector. Uh, And I think when you're relying very much on whether it's government grants, that's one thing, but when you're relying on really consumers um, to use their disposable income to help others, then um, I think COVID represents some really serious challenges for a lot of non-for-profits because right now people don't have the disposable income that they had. They probably are still very much the same you know, passion for that NGO or that charity that they really care about. Um, But, you know, when you're fighting to save your mortgage or that money really needs to go to your child's school fees, then I think, you know, a lot of charities are going to find that very difficult or have to double down on, you know, whether that's subscriptions or double down on kind of corporate memberships. And those, again, are challenging. Um, So I, I really think looking at new models and ways of using the assets that sit inside a a charities organisation is is really interesting in terms of disrupting the model, which is why I really like what Save the Children have done. And I also think what Ronnie Khan has done in in Oz Harvest and and Creating for Purpose Co, um, you know, are, are really exciting new ways of fundamentally shifting the lens and fundamentally shifting the the purpose of how charities exist and how they can actually solve those problems from a grassroots perspective as opposed to simply maybe putting band-aids on things that has been important it's needed to be done but uh, I think uh, there's some really exciting innovations that we're going to start to see out of this sector as I hope more um, charities start to follow those kind of investment funding models. We were talking a little bit earlier off air about the work that you're doing with SDGX. They're a venture capital firm out of Singapore and they're looking specifically to invest in startups that are focused on addressing the sustainable development goals that were mapped out by the UN in 2015. Tell us a little bit more about the work that they do and the opportunities that they afford the companies that they choose to invest in. Maybe a good place to start is SDGs. There's so many acronyms here. So Sustainable Development Goals, there are actually 17. And if you go to the UN website, you can see all 17. But if you read through them, they, 
you know, they come from a humanitarian perspective, you know, it's access to, you know, healthcare, education, to clean water, to diversity, uh, discrimination. So all things that every single one of us would hope for ourselves or for our children. Really what SDGX, which is uh, an investment fund, is here to do, which is to um, first of all, we're raising the first stage of that fund, which will ultimately be a $100 million fund, which is to start investing in the deep technologies that will be responsible for solving those problems. So that uh, 17 is quite a broad range in terms of a mandate for any investment fund. So really what we were focusing on, um, and definitely a passion for me, is around climate change. So, you know, what are those deep technologies that mean that in five to 10 years, we look back and say, actually, that has fundamentally shifted the planet, the oceans, the way we access energy, store energy, what could those things be? That is so exciting when we think about the legacy that we leave. I'm really thrilled to be part of this incredibly talented group and uh, the founders are Australia in Asia and also in Europe. So one of the founders actually created the um, fund for the UN to do exactly that. But I think sometimes when you're inside a large organisation that we've talked about, you feel that your purpose could actually be fulfilled more effectively by actually leaving that organisation and doing the same thing but doing it privately. And so one of the founders um, decided to leave the UN and, and join this team to do exactly that. So we're really, it's in the early stages of building the business and raising the fund, but, um, you know, just an incredible uh, mission that we're all really, really passionate about. I mean, we do a lot of work in the not-for-profit space, but one observation I'd make is that you know, charities haven't made the most of the digital opportunity that exists, not so much in terms of the field work that they do, but more generally in the fundraising mm. activities themselves. Maybe that's because of history. I mean, a lot of the, the well-established charities have been around for a really long time. And I think there's a, a fairly interesting meme that's going around at the moment about, um, you know, what created the most innovation in your company? Was it your CEO? Was it covid and, uh, <laughs> I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't answer that for those CEOs out there listening. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the charity model haven't changed. They've often been around for a really, really long time. Uh, where I see technology adopted is more around businesses that are social enterprises. So if you look at something like um, Thank You Water, uh, yes, it's a product, but actually they've got technology embedded in that in terms of how you can connect to, you know, look at the barcode, you can scan it through, you can go to a website, you can put the details in and you can see directly um, which project that your bottle of water or your soap or whatever you've purchased in that product line, which is now quite broad, has, has actually been connected with. Um, you have businesses like um, the toilet roll company, I think, is it? Is it who gives a crap. crap? Who gives a crap? There We're you go. great customers of theirs. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, again, really, really interesting founder story around you know, a toilet roll, but changing, you know, you can change the product, you can change the service model, and sometimes you can change the brand. So you can look through these three different layers of innovation that you bring to a business. And, and sometimes you can do all three. And again, you know, technology around supply chain, looking at a subscription-based business, a SaaS business effectively. Um, but then, you know, the, the profits that come from that are then invested into a number of different projects uh, that help sanitation around the world. So I would say that I see better use of technology around social enterprise businesses that are starting to spring up more and more than simply a charity that is looking to, to fund or solve certain problems. So, you know, could that be the new pathway for social giving, which is to be buying as a consumer products, which are actually, you know, their technology is tied back to solving the problems. And what's interesting about that is that a lot of the time, the NGOs who have the infield capability to be able mm. to deliver on the promises that the social enterprises are making in terms of, for example, a percentage of revenue going into clean water supplies in mm. another country for every bottle of water that's sold by Thank You, 
there's actually an existing relationship there. It's just that the existing NGOs have been outdone in terms of the brand experience in the front end of the funnel, I would Mm, argue. Yeah. So Karen, you've also talked in the past about, and you touched on it earlier on in our chat, about having your own personal board of directors. Let's call it your PBD, shall we? How does your PBD (laughs) work? And how do you use it to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world? I like to describe it really as thinking about personal board of directors as your um, as your ATM. I think when a lot of people start thinking about networking, about kind of finding mentors or people to help support them through their career, I think they come from an orientation of me, me, me. Like, what could somebody give me? But if you think about your personal board of directors as an ATM, you know, you've got to fill up that ATM first. You've got to you've got to load it with goodness and lots and lots of value before you have the right to take. And so I, I really encourage people to think about creating your personal board of directors. And I, I actually kind of dislike the word mentors, um, but thinking about as you would a business, thinking about diversity and skill sets and people that challenge you and maybe sometimes people that slightly just irritate you and just really test you, you need those on, on your board. Um, you know, people that might be your emotional support, somebody that might really know your industry, but also someone that's not connected to your industry, that could give you different insights and different ways of thinking and really challenge the way that you approach certain problems. And people at different stages, maybe of their career, maybe someone that's, you know, had an incredible career through lots of different stages. And now they sit on actual boards, but also somebody that might be starting their own business. So I think like approaching any knowledge or advice is create diversity, create difference and create some really healthy friction. And uh, most importantly, make sure that you're, you know, really giving to them as opposed to taking to them and cherish and nurture those relationships as opposed to just pulling from them. And I don't think people always think about mentors in the right way with the right mindset. Um, And I think it's for for someone that does a lot of support for for whether it's executives or CEOs or startups, it's very easy for everyone to be like, oh, can I have a coffee? Can I have a coffee and a coffee? It's like, "Mm, I think my time for an hour might be worth more than $3.50 or maybe $4 if you're in the CBD. So, you know, think about it that way is um, how are you valuing their time? I really like that. And you also talk about your own stiletto network, which <laughs> I'm assuming can include men. Of course. But, but potentially it potentially doesn't. How does how does that group of kind of high-heeled symbiotic relationships work? I'm a really big believer in making sure that you have um, males and female in your network. And, you know, if you look at the statistics of females in leadership positions, we're still, you know, 17% are CEOs, you know, 14% hold chair positions. I think we're up to about 30% of boards now are women. Those statistics show you that women are not in positions of power. But those statistics also show you that there's potentially a lot of women pulling on these very senior women. So it's really important that you create these, you know, a really good team around you of leaders or women that can really help you navigate. So again, a lot of studies have shown that having huge broad networks, you know, going, it's great that you can go to, you know, a women's event where there's loads and loads of people, but those relationships are often quite shallow. Um, And what you really need to do is to form kind of your stiletto network of four or five really strong, really solid and deep relationships of um, women that can really help you navigate some of the challenges and the nuances that as a female you will go through um, that uh, potentially hasn't been experienced by a male going through their journey. So I'm never into exclusion around one sex be another, but I think there are nuances around this segment as the data shows that there are women that have been able to navigate that. And if you can learn from that or even be aware of that, then that's going to put you in a position of better knowledge, better learnings. And hopefully when you're in those situations, you can see around the corner just a little bit faster than if you didn't have that network. 
Sure, because speaking of data, a study came out earlier on this week. I don't know whether you read about it, but it was by Bankwest Curtin Economics Centre and the Workplace for Gender or Workplace Gender Equality Agency. They concluded that ASX companies boosting their female top tier management by 10 percentage points or more in one year led to a 6.6% increase in market value the following year, or more than $100 million on average. They normalised purely based on gender. What is it about female leadership in particular that results in such improved levels of success? Well, I think the first thing is most businesses will be selling their products, whether it's consumers or to businesses. And women in the workforce are 47% of all businesses. So the chances are that, you know, you are excluding 50% of whoever you're selling to if you don't get women. So I think it's pretty basic when you just kind of look at it and go, well, your customers are women. Why would you not have some representation uh, or equal representation within all of those different levels of decision-making, whether it's the engineering team, a product team, marketing team, so that um, you truly have empathy with your customer and you truly understand them. Because, <laughs> you know, unless you've got the stilettos on, you probably don't know how painful they are to walk in. You can't design a better that's pair, not, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. And um, so I just think actually the... You know, the, the basics of, of what why you would do this are just really, really simple and really, really obvious. And it's frightening that we are here needing these studies to tell us what surely should be just very much common sense. I think it's just been challenging often to get the data because, you know, there are so, so many nuances to it. But I think the more data we get, you know, other than knowing intrinsically that this is just what you should be doing as a leader is making sure you've got diverse teams. But when you have these numbers, it backs it up. So it's not just something that you should do. It's not something you intuitively feel to be right. It's something that has been scientifically proven. And ultimately what often talks is about profitability and revenue and growth. And I feel like until we've had some of those data and those statistics, um, it doesn't move the needle. But data often in a financial world, in a publicly listed business, often are the things that people really, really listen to. Yeah, thankfully, we're seeing more and more of that that empirical data come through to, to prove those results, which is great. So, Karen, you do, and we've spoken a lot about side hustles this afternoon, but you do strike me as a particularly passionate and, and energetic person, in particular, you know, your passion for social enterprise, but well-balanced with a passion for food and wine and, and beyond mm. that travel. You are the only person I know who is a tastemaker for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the <laughs> fantastic uh, luxury and boutique accommodation website, which I'm a big fan of. Mm. I've got to ask, what's a tastemaker? And how do I become one? <laughs> well, um, I think the the main thing is is that you or you go undercover. So that's first of all, if anyone doesn't know Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it's um it's the website really for I guess the discerning traveller that's looking for something boutique and unique. And so I think the experience that you have when you go away isn't always predicated on how much money you spend. It's actually where you spend it and what the experience is like. So I think tastemakers, and in particular the writers, you know, really see things with a quirky sense of style. They see the details. They see it with a, a sense of humour often and um, are probably the kinds of people that like to stay in these places. Um, and I've been travel writing or luxury travel writing now for probably 15 years or so. And that, so I think also when you've stayed in many different places around the world, there is a set of standards or comparability that actually says, you know, having an espresso machine in a place that's 2,000 or 3,000 a night is not a wow factor. But potentially the fact that when you walk in and um, someone knows that Queen is your, you know, your favourite band and it's got your favourite song that's playing, um, you know, through the stereo, that is something that instantly hits an emotional note in you. And so those are kind of the the unique and special moments. And so I think um, 
you've got to have that eye for for detail but also got to be able to really convey uh, what the experience is like in a really entertaining way yeah that's really fun on a more serious note i i was listening to a podcast the other day i think it was an hbr idea cast on the importance of side hustles and Mm. the positive impact and change that it can make not only to your own personal happiness but to your career prospects as well what would you say that your food and travel writings actually brought to your career and your own personal growth oh so much i mean um i think uh you know any passion which is not fulfilled is is then frustrating. And so I remember my, my partner um, saying to me, because my, my love of food is uh, notorious, and, uh, you know, just saying, God, you have to do something with this. And so actually it started with travel writing and then I, I moved into food writing. But I think, first of all, it, it brings real happiness. I think, as we talked about earlier, you know, human beings are incredibly complex. It's very hard for a a single business to really enrich 100% of the human being that you are and the skills and the talents you have. Now, I think if a business can tap into all of that, then it's a very lucky business. But um, I think for many of us, you know, we have these skills or qualities, we don't always get to flex in our roles. And it's tremendously rewarding to be able to do that. So I think particularly with food or travel writing, you know, obviously many of us in the corporate world, you know, at some point have got to choose a restaurant to, you know, whether it's taking someone in the team out to or a client out to. So it's always nice to have a finger on the pulse and be that person that can help others navigate to, you know, the right experience that would really make for an enjoyable evening or lunch. So I think that's always been great. I think people are very amused that I have this other side to me. And I think, again, that just makes you just feel like a a bit more well-rounded, normal human being. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, if you know that your CEO or MD does that, then I think it encourages a sense of curiosity, a sense of learning, a sense of, you know, you can do this too, because I'm not shy about ever talking about that. Um, And I, I think, you know, these things are really good because, they exercise different parts of your brain. You know, writing is absolutely a skill. And I think, you know, leaders more and more are really judged on their communication abilities, whether that's orally or whether that's in writing. So I think being able to convey an experience, whether it's about travel or staying somewhere or the food that you eat, how you're able to describe that and convey that and help another person really understand that. These are all great skills, but it's really brought me incredible joy. And fortunately, my side hustle is something that I can share with friends and family and work colleagues. So most people tend to be okay with that. Well, it's it's getting late in the evening and I'm almost getting hungry just thinking about it. But, <laughs> but look, I can't wait to get back to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and food and travel indulgence once this whole COVID lockdown ends. I can only imagine you feel pretty similar, Karen. I really appreciate your time joining us today on Chunk of Change. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. 